0: I think that the attempt to sort of inoculate ourselves against the problems of liberalism from the beginning, which is constructed basically on a corrupt view of freedom. But liberalism is is constructed on this view that freedom, as an Augustinian, you'll permit me a theological point, that a basically Pelagian idea, Pelagius teaches that the root of freedom is choice. Our freedom to choose good or evil. That is the real freedom Pelagius teaches. And Augustine says no to Pelagius. Our only real freedom is the freedom to do the good.
1: Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo.
1: Today, we're recording from ISI's annual honors conference this year in Philadelphia. And Chad Pecknell, professor at Catholic University of America, is joining us today ahead of his lecture to our honor students later this week. Thanks for joining us, Chad.
0: Oh, my pleasure. It's really a joy to be with you all and be with these great students.
2: Before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Chad, you're one of the key figures in post-liberalism, and I'm wondering, uh, we want to discuss in one of your essays in particular that you've written, but perhaps you could share with our listeners and students, what is post-liberalism and what are some of the aims of the post-liberal order?
0: Yeah. Yeah. My colleagues and I have a a Substack publication called The Post-Liberal Order. And so that that associates us strongly with the term. I think that on one level, the term is just descriptive, (laughs) that Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, is a kind of landmark uh, watershed moment in which we recognize and indeed even Liberals like Barack Obama recognize that, in some sense, it's correct that that what we conceived of as a liberal order has failed, and we're living in a post-liberal moment in which the left is no longer committed to the principles of liberalism, yeah. and in certain respects, the the right has sacrificed itself on on the altar of freedom uh, in such a way that it it makes it look like liberalism doesn't really have a future as such, that liberalism is something which describes the past. Hmm. And so so when we use the word post-liberal, in many ways we're simply dealing with trauma. Hmm. We're dealing with the sense of the loss of an ordering that is really only a couple hundred years old, and we're, we're trying to find a way forward in the, the ruins of that. I think the positive side is, you know, how do you have a constructive vision of politics in, in the wake of the collapse of liberalism? Now, some people, conservatives especially, I think, look to the past and say, well, maybe we can have a conservative recovery mm-hmm. from liberalism. We can return to the classical sources of liberal thought. And maybe we can go to the particularly Whiggish side with, with Edmund Burke, uh, with Russell Kirk, with Alexei de Tocqueville, and we can kind of build the pieces of liberalism back together. The trouble with that vision, and I think post-liberals like myself and Patrick Deneen, who were speaking here this week, is that that's actually part of the problem that brought us to this Mm -hmm. moment. And so it's a a little bit like, you know, going back to the well that poisoned you. Uh, Why would you go back to the well that poisoned you? And so the challenge, I think, constructively well is the constructive challenge how do you how do you in a sense build a new conservative vision that takes takes advantage of, of certain populist discomfort uh, and even impatience with how things proceeded for liberal conservatives for years and build something that's better that's that's more constructive that's smarter that is going to be better for families for individuals for for governments and I think that's the so the post liberal vision on the on the constructive side is is actually not post liberal but trying to look beyond the liberal uh, for an order which is just and good, um, which is peaceful and which helps helps people to flourish. And I think maybe in some sense post liberal doesn't even describe that. It's hmm. just post liberal is almost entirely negative.
1: Yeah. You mentioned this kind of populist the or popular discontent and um, frustration and obviously there are other movements that perhaps have some parallels with post liberalism, such as you might call it the new right or national conservatism. Could you t- like, I guess, classify post or and would you classify post liberalism more closely with the conservative disposition, although there seem to be cross spectrum alignments that can be made there. Are there similarities between these different movements? What ultimately distinguishes post liberalism from the other camps that have kind of been establishing themselves over the years.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's the, the ambiguity there is is appreciated because I, I think we are, we're living, we're living in a moment in which there's, I think an attempt to for conservatives to return to what's familiar. And so part of it is, in a, I think there is some, in some circles there's an attempt to, Take advantage of the conservative democratic sentiment, which moved for Trump, for example, is an opportunity, right? An opportunity to build a new conservative vision. And for some post-liberals, if you want to use the term broadly, that means trying to take some of those themes around the common good, about, uh, around a sort of working class conservatism, and make it fit for the old fusion for the old sort of William F. Buckley fusionism. And this is what I call the fusionism 2.0 problem, trying to go back to the well, um, but, but use, use, use some of the new terms of, of the populist shift. And I think my, my colleagues at post-liberal order are critical of that. We're critical of any attempt to return to what we call right liberalism. The major question which I think ISI is dealing with and and other leaders are dealing with is okay, but how do we deal with the institutions that we have?
2: Yeah.
0: How do we deal with the with real world institutions that have legacy, that have history, that have structures that we can't just dissolve? And and this is this leads to a lot of think complexity in in how and how the major legacy conservative institutions proceed. Do they proceed purely along fusionism 2.0 lines, just get the band back together, the band that really put us in this spot? Or or is do we have genuine attempts to sort of see in our political moment, the post-Trumpian moment is one in which we have to say, okay, can we have a genuinely new political vision that is good? And I think that's where we are. At least my perception of, of what's going on at ISI is ISI is trying to discern that. How do you be a? How can you be a legacy institution founded in 1953 with individualism in your title, yeah. but not actually be individualist? Uh, and I think I think that's a that's a challenge for all of our legacy conservative institutions. Is is I know Kevin Roberts is dealing with that, and and I and I, I know that there are criticisms of that, but. But this is—we're in a complex time of trying to sort out who belongs in what camp. Hmm. Chad, a couple, one
2: quick comment on ISI, and then I'm curious about the um, the going the going back to the well, and whether mm-hmm. or not the situation we're in is inevitable. If there are ways that we can remedy that, one thing that I, one interesting thing that I did find on an, an ISI pamphlet from about 1955, <laughs> which you know it said Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Interestingly enough, the first objective of of ISI that was listed on the pamphlet said this: "To further the belief that Judeo-Christian morals apply in political action as well as in individual activity." Isn't that interesting? So I I was I was very intrigued to see that. So even even back in the the early days, there was you know certainly traditionalists who wanted a more assertive, not just private moralities for the private sphere, but for the public sphere as well. So I found that to be interesting, but I guess going back to the question of going back to the well, um, and this connects to Patrick's book, "Why Liberalism Failed." To what extent do you see as as Americans the transition from classical liberalism to progressive liberalism as being and just an inevitable kind of decline, right? Um, And then, second, I know Patrick often talks about the conservative. Tradition in America, which is neglected or looked over, and that perhaps we could have a different politics if we recovered that conservative tradition. Do you think that? I- I'd be curious if, if, if Tocqueville, for example, mm-hmm. is not it. Uh, do you think there's enough of a kind of a substantive American conservative tradition that we could recover, you know, a good, a just order? Um, without just going back to the well? Is there an alternative canon that you would propose, or is it just the function of being an American? No?
0: I mean, in a, in a sense, your question is, does America only have one well? Sure. Does It's it, the only well for America, the, the, the Lockean side of the founder's vision. Yeah. I, I think the answer to that is no. Uh, and Patrick's points about a conservative tradition in America are well taken. You can go back, not just to John Winthrop, but, I mean, Concerners have to show a little bit of intellectual curiosity about the names of our cities, for example. We have our cities are called Sacramento, San Francisco after St. Francis, Los Angeles after the the Feast of the Holy Angels, a holy king, St. Louis, St. Augustine, Florida. The fact is that things aren't inevitable. Mm -hmm. Nothing about America is inevitable. And that... I mean, if you would have asked me as a as a teenager if America would one day fly thousands of pride flags and everyone would, in be in lockstep obeisance to them, I would have said you were crazy. That's somehow contrary to the American way, where we pay allegiance to the flag. I mean, if any if anything should be evident about a and, and the sort of triumph of the pride flag over our regime, it's that anything is possible yeah uh-huh. <laughs> and it could as easily be you know a flag of the sacred heart as it could be a pride flag so i think there is nothing inevitable about the sort of liberal devolution in that sense i think there is a way in which i dissent from the typical straussian lines that 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 the real problem is not liberalism but the sort of Hegelian influence mm. uh, of progressivism, which comes in the 19th century, a certain, a certain tendency towards Hegelian idealism or German idealism yeah. that, that infects the liberal project. I think that's wrong. So in, in that sense, I, I, I think that the attempt to sort of inoculate ourselves against the problems of liberalism from the beginning, which is constructed basically on a corrupt view of freedom, Hmm. That liberalism is is constructed on this view uh, that freedom, uh, as an Augustinian, you'll permit me a theological point, that a basically Pelagian idea, Pelagius teaches that the root of freedom is choice. Hmm. Our freedom to choose good or evil, that is the real freedom Pelagius teaches. And Augustine says no to Pelagius. Our only real freedom is the freedom to do the good, Hmm. that that what is the choice for evil, but bondage, slavery, right? Demeaning ourselves, right? That is not true. Liberty. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was an attempt in America, in the American conservative tradition to think about ordered liberty as, as a version of that, an attempt to kind of correct a liberal conception mm-hmm. of freedom. But look how easily conservatives lock right back into a liberal view of Liberty when it comes to economics, so I think I think we have to challenge as conservatives that conception of liberty. There's a wonderful essay by a hero of mine, one of the founders of Christendom College, named William Marshner, who wrote this essay on liberty and social order. And he rightly says that this is at the root of our of our problems. Uh, he, he was a great critic of National Review. He, he always put, had in his sights National Review as promoting this liberal conception of freedom, which is fundamentally corrosive of authority, of tradition, of of, of uh, the national good, mm-hmm. uh, and I think, I think in a sense, he, he his time was too early, but not too late. Yeah, uh, uh, a phrase a friend uses for Mark Santorum, for Senator Santorum, uh, yeah. uh, who who I think you know his his kind of common good conservatism. And william marshner's you know critique of of, of the concept of liberty that's corrupt the, these are wells these are sources which we can return to and think about uh, America could have a better future if it had a different conception of liberty
1: so that kind of reminds me of I mean especially one of your fields of expertise is augustine and um, in I believe it's the piece that you recommended, uh, or that you assigned our honor students um, on the religious nature of the city. Um, I'm curious what some of the parallels between, and as mentioned in the piece, um, the parallels between the Rome of Augustine's day and contemporary America, just going mm-hmm. off what you said um, earlier about, um, you know, the the pride flag kind of becoming this national symbol. And you write of how, you know, the the Romans they prioritized consent. So the moral, their moral code was rooted in consent and had, they had this tunnel vision directed toward material prosperity and un- totally untethered from, from duties to others. So kind of this, this hedonism that seeped into the culture. With these comparisons in mind between Rome and perhaps contemporary America, what do you think it means to live in what you called a, a late liberal empire?
0: I mean, the analyses are obvious, right? I mean, when, when you think about Augustine's critique in book two of, of Roman of Roman Edenism and in which he has in the back of his mind Saint. Paul's mm-hmm. you know words on, on Romans uh, that their God is their stomach. It's hard to say that our God is not our stomach our appetites mm-hmm. drive us as America our sexual appetites our identity appetite uh, and our literal appetite <laughs> for food and yet our inability to produce anything. Mm-hmm our inability to, to actually be makers, to actually be constructed. I mean, it's not accidental, I think, that we have a crisis of fatherlessness hmm. in America, that that's something our men are not able to produce children and care for them. Um, and all we can do is celebrate choice. And I think that's what Augustine's identifying uh, in the, the sort of collapse of Roman order. And I think these are more correlational than causal. Mm-hmm. That that as the collapse of an order occurs, there's a kind of there's a kind of fight or flight attitude that many people experience. Um, and you know, I think even even in the reticence for young people to get married, you see a kind of fight or flight. Mm-hmm. It's uncertain if there's an order, if there's a structure that will support your marriage. Right. And so a radical thing that young people can do is get married because it's radical hope that um, that uh, that that a marriage itself is an order, which uh, uh, is is good. But when the order is corruptive, when the order is corruptive of the soul or the good of the family, you're terrified. Hmm. You're, You're maybe you won't articulate it as terror, but there's something terrifying about. Living in an order which is curb. somebody asked me earlier, what are students like? In fact, yeah. it was you. And I, the first word that came to my mind was timid. Hmm. Why are they timid? Why are my students so timid? Uh, some of them are not timid. Some of them are bold because they're they're fired up by woke religion. Woke religion's emboldening because woke religion's got power with it. It's got teeth. It's got the teeth of the administrative hmm. state behind it. But many people, I think, are timid because uh, they, they feel the structures aren't holding. And when that happens, all you have is your belly. Uh, you're just trying to trying to kind of get by with um, whatever brings you pleasure. And this is a very ancient problem. This is precisely the problem that Socrates gives us with commending us uh, to a life of virtue. Hmm. Uh, you, you recall, of course, the concern with uh, in the in the post-Socratic period was that students of Socrates either went with Plato, that the, that virtue was in the ascent of the intellect, Mm -hmm. to the one, or that virtue was simply pleasure. Hmm. What's virtuous? What's the virtuous life, the life of pleasure and which way modern man, which way should we go? And I, and I think people faced with the, with the terror of disorder are often just, picking the lower lowest appetites as the as the kind of realm in which they're going to exist and move and fight for, rather than something higher. And I think conservatives have to address that. They have to address that there's there's material problems that every human being is facing in America. And people are are trying to meet those material needs with drugs, with the opioid crisis, with porn with with trying to form communities uh you know it's shocking to see young people who in groups will all of a sudden want to identify as transgendered why is that a sort of desire for sympathy a Hmm. desire for community right Uh, yes i will cut off my genitals so that i can belong to this community these these are sort of symptoms of a diseased society Hmm. a society that has a structural Ailment, and that conservatives have to say the solution to the ailments is not liberalism. We we have to say this is this is a failed project which has brought us to this feverish city, mm-hmm. and we need to, uh, in a sense, reach to deeper religious, spiritual, substantive resources for a cure. Now, this is what Plato lacked. Plato lacks the real spiritual resources to heal a feverish city. And as Patrick Deneen discussed today, that's why Plato's Republic ends with no solution to the fever city. But I think St. Augustine's solution to the fever city is true religion, is the church.
1: Hmm. On your um, point about timidity and weakness, because it's something I've also kind of observed, and I'm having a boy, and one of the things that has not haunted me, I I think this is something that can be effectively countered with with really good parenting and a strong father figure, but I think we live a, in a very anti-male society, and all of the virtues of, of masculinity are, um, the left is very hell-bent on eradicating them from our culture, and they're doing so to a, a scarily effective degree, and there is this since you're writing a book on, on St. Augustine, I also want to get your thoughts on the fringe crypto-pagan line of thought that Christianity is at fault for the decline of the West because of this idea that it has proliferated um, this this weakness and has emasculated society. And obviously, like the fringe crypto-pagan, um, I'm not going to name the the progenitor of, of this movement.
0: I know you mean. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I can't help but be reminded of St. Augustine's city of God when I hear these arguments. So what can we learn from Augustine's city of God in such a conversation?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a the critics of Christianity um, from Kelsus to Nietzsche, you know, hmm. is, is a course one could teach and it's common line. And, you know, you, you can get a certain, certain um, pagan right-wing nationalists who, who spout the same kinds of laws I mean, what's extraordinary to me is actually the way in which one could make that claim against the image of the Father's love for the Son. Hmm. Christianity is the revelation of the Father's love for the Son and the Holy Spirit sharing that love with us. Um, And that love is not weakness, but the cause of order itself. And so really what Christianity does is it raises the father up. It raises the man up from a creature of appetite who just wants sexual pleasure and then to be dispensed with his obligations to a woman and a child, to being raised up uh, to something higher, uh, something more noble. And so in a sense, Christianity is itself the ennobling principle of the man. Um, even as, as much as it ennobles the wo- woman through the vision of, of Mary, it, it really it really makes the man much more responsible, um, much more virtuous, and, and more noble. And so it's, it's kind of shocking that one of the pagan critiques could be that somehow Christianity is less manly for that. In fact, it actually raises the man up to something better than a bro. Chad, I'm
2: curious. One criticism of post, post-liberals post generally, which I actually don't think is a legitimate one, but is that, you know, what, is, what does all this mean practically? Like, what does your policy agenda look yeah. like? And I know Gladden uh, has done good work on yeah. pro-family policy. I know Patrick has been talking for a while about even labor-related policy yeah. issues. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is your, you know, if you, I don't know, if you were an advisor
0: to the future president, yeah. what are the top priorities that you would advise yeah well I mean I'm probably the least policy uh, friendly person uh, as a theologian but but yeah I mean I think I think what I'm probably most associated with is is advocating for the use of executive power and, and legislative power in defense of the unborn hmm. and so that would be my number one priority is using the president's constitutional authority to interpret the Fourteenth Amendment to protect unborn and uh, uh, That would that will be a high priority for me in the next Republican uh, uh, regime in in the White House is is to use the full extent of the administrative power of the executive branch to ensure a federal protection of the unborn. And I think my friend Josh Craddock and I have worked on this. This is also possible at the state level at the state executive power and state legislative power where, where conservatives have legislative power. As you say, Gladden's family policy—that's the one we want. That's that's the one we need, in which we commit to five percent, six percent of GDP goes towards incentivizing family growth, family formation, and family growth. You know, we had Jonathan Riley speak. You know uh, about how bad uh, government is for for you know welfare making. Black families um, actually poor by state welfare. But I think there's a whole host of uses of government action Mm. that are good for families. And one of them is incentivizing what is already natural to Mm. to the human person. It's already natural that men and women should marry. So how do you incentivize that? Um, Not just with cash, but with through structural tax incentives, things like our friends in Hungary do. Uh, if you have three children you no longer pay taxes like those are incentives right that that really don't cost the government anything uh, in terms of 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 real expenditure mm-hmm. but actually incentivize something which is productive within the family and where you incentivize production in the family, you actually expand the good of the nation yep. and so you would th- say there's a
2: difference then obviously between, government as a tool for liberalization releasing the individual from the the chains quote unquote of yeah. family local community versus government helping someone to pursue natural ends
0: yeah. exactly yeah. exactly finding finding those ways in which the, the 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 government makes it easier to do the thing that you're already ordered to yeah
1: So on the you you previously mentioned, I believe it was I actually saw Josh Craddock having written about prenatal personhood as being codified in the 14th Amendment for post liberal order. And I was really happy to see that because um, I think he's been a really powerful, powerful voice in the, um, you know, crusade against abortion, especially after.
0: By the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but people don't know this about Josh, that Josh has been arguing this since the age of like 16 as a homeschooler.
1: Yeah, we had him on the podcast actually a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and he, yeah. So he he's he's been arguing this longer than anybody. Else.
1: Yeah, no. His I I think his case is extremely strong, and obviously it was a triumphant day when the the Dobbs decision was released. And um, obviously, I think it's half of the U.S. states, if not more, have um, now enforced these abortion restrictions, which is obviously a huge victory for for pro-lifers. So I'm curious. You know, obviously, this is a um, I, this is something that's being enforced legally, and we have to now kind of reform the culture to a certain degree to make sure that it pro life, the, that the pro life cause does proliferate, and that we are successful in saving as many children as possible and making it possible for for women to who who do have. Uh, you know, unplanned pregnancies to not even consider abortion in the first place. How do we, you know, remedy the horrors of the last several decades of, of Roe through culture? Is, is there a policy proposition that you would suggest to do that? Or is, is, it, is this something that needs work in the culture, culture itself?
0: Help me understand you, are you saying post Roe or post abolition?
1: Sorry. So, um, after like so current day, contemporary day, we're we now have the Dobbs decision. Like 26 or so states have said there's, you know, you can't or to, to some gestational age, you can no longer seek out an abortion. Obviously, a victory for pro lifers. But going forward, I guess, what would what in a post liberal lens, how do we what's the next step for making sure that abortion is perhaps, you know, federally illegal or
0: I think that's the key is is that the road to abolition is urgent and I mean you wouldn't have thought after a Stephen Douglas speech that that you could end slavery incrementally it, 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 your response to that would be no we we have to end slavery now because this is a matter of justice and I think it was disappointing to see certain conservatives and I won't mention them who thought that the Dobbs decision was a triumph for Democracy, as if that's what we were trying to save, right? Democracy is not the thing that we're uh, interested in saving here. We're interested in saving the unborn, and so Dobbs is a you know a it's a partial good in that it removes a horrific law from our books. In no way is it bringing justice to bear uh, on the life of the unborn. So. I mean, I, I think our fight has become, you know, we're just at the beginning of a fight for abolition. And, and in, in some ways, the fight for abolition is now much more feasible because of dogs. We can now really fight for abolition. But any anyone who thinks that somehow we can leave it to the states, um, I don't think you can take seriously as a conservative. Conservative should conserve human life and... Uh, I think it should be the, the highest priority of the conservative to bring a, a federal end to a, abortion. And as you say, have policies in place, and indeed we do have many policies in place which are designed to, to, to aid, um, but we need a lot more policies in place. I think, I think family policy has to kind of be twinned with abortion abolition. You need a very strong family policy. You need the resources of the federal and state governments aiding families, aiding family formation, aiding the good of marriage. Um, I, I don't think it's a secret that, like me, want to reverse Obergefell, that that Obergefell codified in law something which is contrary to the good of the family. Um, it's relativizing. And the cultural work that you that you rightly point to, I think is, is not either or it's not like we we have these debates about politics being downstream of culture. It's just too simple. We, we have to work at the political level to use coercive force to uh, change laws. And we have to work at the cultural level to persuade people that um, that marriage simply isn't what Obergefell says it is. um, And that, that for the good of the family, we have to uh, protect every human life in the womb. And we have to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And these are things which have to be fought for uh, at the level of law and at the level of culture. I think people underestimate the power of law to shape culture. I know a lot of my colleagues uh, think, think that uh, people will just disregard law because the culture is not there, but that's not my experience. I mean, is great proof: as soon as you change the law, everybody—human beings—are made to conform to laws, and they're even made, sadly, to conform to unjust laws hmm. because we're we're made this way. We're made to follow authorities. Um, now, you can be like uh, the guy in Monty Python who says, "I'm not." But you sort of prove the rule the moment you say, I'm not. Um, And human beings will follow laws and cultures will follow laws. And so I think it's incumbent upon conservatives to say, okay, well, how do we wield power justly in order to change the laws uh, in accord with what is actually good? Chad, one one
2: last question real quick, and then we have to run. This is not an easy question to answer, but you're writing a book on. Augustine made two books on Augustine. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between justice and the soul and justice Mm -hmm. in the, in the city Mm -hmm. and both
0: reflecting on Augustine
2: and Plato. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, just, uh, I mean, uh, not since I'm I'm writing two books on it, it doesn't seem like a good two minute kind of question, but uh, briefly the platonic problem, which uh, Professor Janine spoke about this morning at the ISI conference was, is, is really good backdrop that, that in Plato's Republic he describes the the contrast between the feverish city and the healthy city. And that the city um, is in a sense produced by the soul. It's the production of the the souls who 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 found a city and who lead a city, govern a city, but that the structures of the city um, will reflect any corruption in the soul. And so you, in a sense, need purified souls in order to have a purified city. The, the knock on consequences is once you have a sort of feverish city, an ill city, a city which is, you know, dragged low by its appetite, you have a city which is also corruptive of new souls. So we not only want to save the unborn physically, but we also want to save souls so that we don't build cities which are corruptive of our youth. And if uh, we think about the structure of our city as essential to the health of our souls, we'll think differently about politics. Uh, what we what we have tended to do as, as liberal conservatives is to think that somehow the soul is prior to the city. But that's a false set of alternatives. But we really need to understand is that at the root of the soul is this social and political nature. We're made to build a city and that our cities in turn form us. And so we have to hmm. take a keen interest in forming structures that are good for human souls. Hmm. I think that's the perfect
2: note to end on. Thanks for joining us today, Chad. If people want to read more from you or follow your
0: work, where can they find you? Uh, we're, all of our works at the Postable Order Substack um, easily found on great <laughs>
2: thanks so much for being with us chad
1: thank you for listening conservative conversations with isi if you've enjoyed this podcast please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all the offer our members including the interpleader review select modern age articles isi books and of course this podcast thanks again for listening don't forget to rate and review and we'll see you next time on conservative conversations with isi